Good morning. Uh, our scripture today is very short and sweet, but it is extremely important. So find it in your bulletin and we'll read it. Okay, this is Exodus 20, 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And that's it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Suzanne. And special thanks to Mark uh, and the worship team for leading us this morning. Um, and to the dads in the crowd, let me add my welcome. Happy Father's Day to you. If you came this morning accepting, expecting a, a warm-hearted Father's Day sermon, today will not be that day. Um, but next year, come back next year, and I will be preaching an encouraging sermon entitled, Dads Are Really Awesome. <clears throat> this morning, we come to one of the most famous and important sections of the entire Bible. It is uh, the Ten Commandments, and today we're going to focus our attention on the First Commandment alone. But before we do, it's vitally important that we remember what God said to the Israelite people before the first commandment. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Theologians refer to this sentence as the historical prologue or the historical introduction. And this prologue reminds God's people of three very important things. First. God is a personal God. I am your God. Second, he is the God who saves. I brought you out of this house of slavery. And finally, he is a providential God. I brought you out on purpose to fulfill my good purposes. God has a purpose for his people. By my count, the phrase out of Egypt occurs more than 100 times in the Bible. Out of Egypt is the shorthand version of God reminding his people who rescues, how he rescues, and why he rescues. In the historical prologue, we see coming together two things at the same time, God's immense power and his intense care working on behalf of his people. And I know it's early in the sermon, but it's time for our pop quiz. What if God had appeared to Moses in the burning bush and he had given him the Ten Commandments and he says, go back to Egypt. And if any of those people can keep all of the commandments all of the time, then I will bring those people out of Egypt. Question, how many of those people would have been rescued? Of course, the answer is none. None would have been rescued, not even Moses himself. From the historical prologue, we learn something incredibly important about God. 
God rescues first, and then he gives his moral law. God's grace, his active, rescuing, transforming grace, always is given before God's law. These three words out of Egypt are nine months pregnant with meaning. And let me stress to you that you should not read the Ten Commandments apart from reading these, the, the historical prologue, because if you do, you will have divorced rules from relationship. So now let's turn our attention to the first commandment. And we're going to dissect it this morning, and we're going to look at what it says, what it means, why it's first, and why it still matters. The first commandment simply says, you shall have no other gods before me. This commandment can also be interpreted to read, you shall have no other gods besides me, or no other god instead of me, or no other god as a substitute for me. In the Bible, whenever you see the word God spelled with a little g, you can be assured that the text is always referring to idols. So we know what it says, so what does it mean? What is an idol? St. Augustine said that an idol is anything in your life that occupies the place in your heart that should be occupied by God alone. Theologian Richard Keyes said, an idol is something within creation that we inflate to function as a substitute for God. John Calvin famously said that the human heart is like an idol factory, and it's odd that Friedrich Nietzsche a atheist philosopher would agree. Nietzsche said there are more idols in the world than there are realities. And so anytime you get a theologian and an atheist who agree on something, it has to be true. <laughs> so what they meant is an idol can be a person, an institution, a political ideology, a cause. It can be membership in a group or club. It can even be ministry success. Idols are good things that God gives us that we elevate in our hearts to, to the place of an ultimate thing. An idol can be anything or anyone that operates in your heart as a functional substitute for God. Egyptologists tell us that in that day, the Egyptian people worshiped hundreds of different gods and goddesses. And today in America, Americans worship even more. You see, whatever you set your hopes on, whether it's something in creation, that, that thing that's going to satisfy you, that thing that validates your existence, the thing that you look to for your identity, your value, your meaning, your purpose, and your self-worth, you are asking that thing to function as your personal savior. You are looking horizontally for what will only ever be yours vertically. You are asking something in creation to do what only God can do. Martin Luther said the intent of the first commandment was that it's to require true faith and trust of the heart which settles upon the only true God and clings to him alone. What Luther understood was that your heart is either going to cling to God or it's going to cling to something else instead of God. And Luther said, what your heart clings to, that 
is really your God. See, the problem for us is that not that we make idols, but that we worship idols in the place of God. Idol worship is the oldest religion known to man. It's the religion we call today idol worship. So what does God mean to tell us in the first commandment? No idols, no idolatry, no idol worship. Today, when we think of idolatry, most of us think of a rare sin. People in a remote village somewhere or a jungle bowing down before some idol sculpture. When our youngest daughter was nine years old, I told her, I said, uh, I bought a sculpture, I put it in the den, and I don't want you playing with it. And her eyes got a big around as saucers, and she said, Dad, are you praying to it? <laughs> and what she really meant was, Dad, are you worshiping it? Like many of you, my first introduction to the Bible was watching the Ten Commandments on TV. And as you remember, after every plague, Moses comes before Pharaoh and he says, what three words? Let my people go. But he said in a lot more booming voice than that. But you know, when you read the Bible, that's not what Moses really said. What Moses really said was, let my people go so that they may worship me. So that they may worship me. Author Paul Tripp said that the heart is the worship center of the self. And so to better understand the sin of idolatry, we're going to tread a very difficult journey this morning and take a detour and attempt to understand the human heart. Because you see, the, I, the sin of idolatry is far more sophisticated than my young daughter thought it was. As Ezekiel told us, we don't set up our idols on an altar we set up our idols in our hearts. From the historical prologue, we learned that God delivered his covenant people from a land of physical as well as spiritual slavery. He set them apart geographically and spiritually for a specific purpose, that they might be liberated to worship the one true God alone. The great irony is that while Moses was on top of the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, the Israelites at the bottom of the mark, uh, mountain were making a golden calf. And with the assistance of his brother Aaron, they make this golden calf, and Aaron encourages the people to bow down and worship it, and he says to them, See, O Israel, these, this is your God. This is the one, the God, who brought you up out of Egypt and what we learn from the whole narrative of the book of Exodus is that the great sin of the Moses generation was again and again and again. The people turned back to Egypt in their hearts. Well, our word worship comes from the old English word worship. And embedded in this concept is the idea of great value, the idea of uh, means something to revere or highly value or treasure. And in the Bible, I don't know if you've picked this up, but there's a connection between what we worship and what we love. 
We serve what we worship, and we worship what we love the most. And Jesus says it's not possible, it's impossible for you to separate your heart from what you love and treasure most. Remember, he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Worship always engages the affections of our heart because by human nature, we're lovers. So it's not a question of if you love, it's only a question of what you love. And since there's something in every one of our hearts that is an ultimate love, it's not a question of what you love, if you love something is ultimate. It's only a question of what you love as ultimate. And Jesus again says, it is not possible to have two ultimate loves. You remember when he was talking about money? He said, <clears throat> you will love the one and hate the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Jesus didn't say you should not do it. He said you cannot do it. You cannot have two ultimate loves. You will either love God and use money, or you will love money and use God. He said you cannot serve, you cannot worship both God and money. It's really bizarre how few of us really grasp that our hearts are like a war zone. The Apostle James says that our desires battle within us. He says our passions, our lusts, war within us because something, something besides God is always competing as a rival for the affections and ultimate allegiance of your heart. As one Puritan crudely put it, the great contest of heaven and hell is for the affections of the worm we call man. Augustine said that the essence of idolatry is disordered loves or disordered affections. A man can love his wife, he can love his truck, and he can love his dog. But his wife, his marriage, is the ultimate highest priority. So if a man loves his truck or his dog more than he loves his wife, it might make for a good country western song, but we would say that that man suffers from disordered affections. Listen as you hear what C.S. Lewis wrote about disordered loves. He says, you can't get second things by putting them first. You get second things only by putting first things first. Put first things first, and we get second things thrown in. Put second things first, and we lose both first and second things. Idolatry always involves disordered affections, because with idolatry, you've always taken a second thing and placed it first in your heart. A successful career is a good thing. But when you take your longing for something good and put it in God's place, you are giving to it the worship that he deserves alone. But it gets more complex because it's not just that we are by nature lovers. 
It's that we want what we love. We long for what we love. Our longings, our loves, our desires shape and mold our behavior and the direction of our lives. Philosopher Jamie Smith put it this way, you are what you love. And he says saying you are what you love is really the same as saying you are what you worship. And theologian Gregory Beale agrees. In his book, We Become What We Worship, Beale writes, God created humans to be imaging beings. God made humans to reflect him, but if we worship something besides him, we will not reflect God, but something else in creation. Listen carefully to what the psalmist says. The idols of the nation are made by men. They have eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. The psalmist says that all who worship idols, all who trust in them will be like them. We will be blind. We will be deaf. We will be blind to the depth of our sin. We will be blind to the fact that we are our biggest problem in the world. We will be blind to our need for rescue. We will be blind to the fact that we need rescue not from our circumstances, but from our condition. And we will be deaf when God attempts to speak to us through his word or through, as Paul said, the folly of preaching. Compare the psalmist's explanation and description of deaf and dumb idols to God. God says in Exodus 3 to Moses, I have seen my people. I have heard their cry. I am concerned for them. I care about them. And I will rescue them. I will rescue them. The psalmist puts it very well when he says, I love the Lord because he hears my voice. Now concerning the subject of heart worship, Beale reaches a very sobering conclusion. He says, what you revere, you resemble, either for ruin or restoration. What you revere, you resemble, either for ruin or restoration. That is why idolatry is always the greatest risk to your soul. So, why does God start with this one first, right? I was listening to a radio show a couple weeks back, and a Jewish man hosted the show was talking about his commentary, a commentary that included something about the Ten Commandments. And he said at that time that he felt like uh, the greatest commandment was thou shalt not steal. But then he's been rethinking it and he's thought to himself, well, no, I really think it's honor and your mother and father. And for all of you who are mothers and fathers, can I get an amen to that one? But you know, I have great respect for this man, but I respectfully disagree with his conclusion. In their book entitled Idolatry, Hebrew scholars Halbertal and Margulet note that from cover to cover, the central theological principle of the Bible is the rejection of idolatry. But you will never grasp this. You'll never understand this sin unless you enter deeply into the biblical images that God gives us. 
Because in the Bible, God uses human relationships as human relationships and gives us metaphors from those relationships. And we never wanted to divorce rules from relationship, right? So for example, if a king sees one of his subjects breaking his law, that makes him angry. If a father sees his child breaking his rules, that makes him angry. But when a husband sees the person he loves the most in the arms of another lover, that's different. That's different. In the Bible, the root understanding, the root metaphor for understanding idolatry is the marital relationship. And according to this metaphor, idolatry is like a sexual sin. People who enter marriage do so with shared moral agreements, right? They, they have agreements about what is permitted and what is forbidden in their relationship. And in that day, just as in our day, those who enter marriage do so with the assumption that there's going to be exclusivity in the sexual realm. As the Bible says, let, not the, let the marriage bed not be defiled. And even in our secular culture today, we still have some shared moral assumptions when it comes to the institution of marriage. We still take for granted that adultery is a prohibited act. It's a serious sin in human society at large and a devastating betrayal in the context of an individual marriage. Drawing on the parallels from marriage, we learn that just as a husband and a wife is right to insist on exclusivity in the sexual realm, God insists on exclusivity in the realm of worship. That is why throughout the scriptures, the sin of idolatry is variously called harlotry or a whoring after other gods. But Pastor Tim Keller says that we will never understand God or grace or sin until our heart understands God as our bridegroom, until we see him as our husband. Some of you know that in the prophets of the Old Testament, God has revealed himself variously to his people as their husband. In Isaiah, for example, Isaiah says, don't be afraid, O Israel, for your maker is your husband. And I will call you back as if you were a wife who married young, only to be rejected. With deep compassion, I will bring you back. As a young man marries a young woman, as a bridegroom marries a bride, so God rejoices over you. If there is one book in the entire Bible that highlights this relationship better than any other, it is the book of Hosea. In the book of Hosea, we learn that our relationship with God is like a marriage. More accurately, we learn that our relationship with God is like a bad marriage. And we learn what God does and what it cost him to heal his marriage. So in chapter 1 of the book of Hosea, God appears to the prophet and he says, imagine this, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, the land, the nation, the people are guilty of unfaithfulness. 
So obedient Hosea goes out, and he does so. And God says to him, I want you to marry a woman that's going to betray you. I want you to marry a woman that is going to break your heart. And so Hosea goes out, and he finds a prostitute named Gomer, and he marries her. And immediately she becomes unfaithful to him, and she has three children. And the last one, Hosea names Lo-Ami, which means not mine, not mine. In chapter 2 of the book, Gomer leaves Hosea for other lovers. Hosea remains faithful to his wife, provides for her, but she doesn't acknowledge his provision and credits it to her lovers. And in the biblical narrative, Gomer's sexual unfaithfulness is depicted as idolatry as a following after other gods. Like Gomer, we follow after other gods when our hearts cling to some golden calf. When there's something in your life that's more important than, than God, it could be making money. It could be your looks, your career, your success, a political ideology. If there's anything in your life in your heart that is more important to you than God, you suffer from disordered affections. You are doing with your soul what Gomer did with her body. Idolatry is trusting something in creation to be your personal savior. It's asking something in creation to satisfy your heart's deep hunger for significance and security. It's believing that something in creation can do for you what only God can do. But no false gods can save you. They cannot rescue you. They cannot forgive you. They will never love you. They can only disappoint and enslave you. As Jeremiah once said, your lovers despise you and seek your life. With idolatry, your heart searches restlessly on a horizontal plane for secure acceptance and worth that you will only ever find if you look vertically. And I, Augustine was right. God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. So, you know, we today we think of idolatry as a is just one sin among many. And a rare sin at that. You know, we have the first two commandments dealing with idolatry, and then you have three through ten. But did you know that you'll never break three through ten without having broken one and two first? Idolatry is not a rare sin. It's the sin beneath every other sin. It is the only reason that you ever do anything wrong. Well, let's turn back to Hosea chapter 3, and when we do, we find things have really gone from bad to worse. Uh, what we learn here is uh, what God does to heal his marriage and what it costs him. So God speaks to Hosea, and listen very carefully, says, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods 
and loved the sacred raisin cakes. Sacred raisin cakes were the things that they ate at the delicacies at idol feasts. So the scripture says, so I bought her. I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lecta of barley. So I bought her? We don't really know what happened here. Uh, but we know this, Gomer is in the public square and she's up for sale. We don't know if she had fallen into debt and sold herself to a creditor and then he was trying to sell her to cut her losses, his losses, but we know it's bad. And in that day, a sale of this kind would require the person being purchased to strip naked because the buyers want to be able to see the merchandise. And so we can easily imagine that as the bidding began, Gomer would bow her head and close her eyes to shield herself from the deepest moment of humiliation she'd probably ever experienced. And as she hears the bidders crying out five shekels, ten shekels, she hears a familiar voice. She hears the voice of her husband bidding on her. And he says, 15 shekels, 15 shekels and a homer, 15 shekels and a lecta. And so I bought her. She probably had to be thinking to herself, is this payback? Is this going to be massive payback? Hosea buys back his bride. In love, he redeems her. He takes his cloak and wraps her to cover her nakedness. And then he says to her, you are to live with me many days, and you must not be a prostitute or intimate with any man. What is Hosea saying? He's saying, I want us to rebuild our life together. Hosea pays the price to restore the relationship. He pays it financially. He pays it socially. Can you imagine what the people in his community must have thought? And he pays it emotionally. He has been devastated. The story of Hosea is analogous to our relationship with God. Hosea's in love, God's in love. Hosea's married, God's married. Hosea's been betrayed by his wife. God has been betrayed by his bride. Hosea pays a price to restore the relationship. Where does God pay a price? to restore the relationship? Well, the answer is found in the final verses of chapter 3, where it says, For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones or household gods, and afterwards they will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. What's odd is David's dead. So it has to mean a descendant of David, and of course it does. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus is asked by the Pharisees, why don't your disciples fast? Why do they go on eating and drinking? And Jesus answers saying, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? Jesus calls himself the bridegroom. And in that day, everyone in Israel knew that the bridegroom of Israel was the Lord God Almighty. And Jesus said, I am that bridegroom, and I've come to lay down my life for my bride. 
In Christ, God enters the public square, and at the cross, he paid the price to buy back his wayward bride, to recapture her heart. And our sin went on to him, so his righteousness could come on to us. He forgives our sins. His righteousness covers all of our adulteries. We have been bought at a price, the most costly sacrifice ever made. But we were not redeemed with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without spot or blemish. So now I hope you can see why the first commandment still matters. But you're never going to appreciate God's love for you so long as you see him mainly as your boss. You will not experience it until you see him as your bridegroom. So in a room this size, some people may be on the fence about following Christ. And for you, my prayer would be that the Holy Spirit would graciously give you eyes to see what it cost God to love you. You see, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. If we love him, it's because he first loved us. If you're a follower of Christ, the Apostle Paul instructs us to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. I think Augustine says pretty much the same thing, but a little differently when he says, love God and do whatever you please. For the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. Let me close by reminding us of the words from the old song. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, uh, you are the great searcher of hearts. We pray that we would not be people that would honor you with our lips while our hearts are still far from you. We pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us to guard our hearts, for in them is the wellspring of all our life. We pray that we might come to see you not as our boss or our judge, but as our bridegroom. And it's in the name of Jesus, our beloved bridegroom, that we pray. Amen.